Our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 19. We begin reading at verse 28. After Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, thus shall ye speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their garments on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, Hosanna. And some of the Pharisees in the multitudes said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. This, of course, as I have said already, marks the most important week in all of human history because it marks the week in which the greatest events and the life and the ministry of our Lord took place. In this week, which is called Palm Sunday, we come not only to Monday, Thursday in the institution of the Holy Supper, but we come to Good Friday and his death upon the cross, and then next Sunday we come to Easter and his mighty resurrection from the dead. These great events speak to us. And it is not without significance that in all four records of the gospel there is an account 
of what is called Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It is not for nothing that we are told that the people are crying out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna is an Aramaic word. It does not mean praise the Lord as so many people think it means. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hosanna means save us. It's a real cry of intensity that comes from uh, the innermost being. It means save us, Lord. Save us now. Save us, please. It's the cry of a people who are oppressed and burdened. Here are people who have seen big parades because the Romans are famous for their parades. Military people tell us that there have never been uniforms in the history of military science that come close to being as overpowering and as impressive as the regalia that a Roman soldier wore. He was fearsome when he came into the presence of people with his helmet and with the plume and with his breastplate and his shield and his sword and his sandals. That's why Paul, the apostle who was so often chained to a soldier, speaks about the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith. Well, the Romans loved parades. They loved to demonstrate their great military power. And a few weeks ago when I saw in a friend's home a tape of that film, Quo Vatis, you saw how impressive it is when these legionnaires come in. Well, out here in the city of Jerusalem, there was not a governor, but a procurator, lower than a governor, by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate would have come into the city of Jerusalem for this festival of the Passover. And when he came, there would be 100 Roman soldiers in front of him, and 100 Roman soldiers in back of him, each with chiseled precision marching to awe the people and to make them to know the fierce might and power of Rome. The people hated Rome. They loathed Rome and its dominance over them. But the Romans, with their helmets and plumes and banners and standards, overpowered the people. And so there would have been a parade into Jerusalem by Pilate. There would have been a parade into Jerusalem by Herod. This Herod who was a puppet king left in power and authority. And there was some rivalry between this Herod and between Pilate. And one of the ironies of Holy Week is that these two who were at each other's throat really almost become friends over the death of Jesus. You see, Pilate, when he came to the city of Jerusalem, lived in Herod's old palace. The Roman Caesar said, that's good enough for the procurator, he can live there. But this Herod, this wretched, evil man who had betrayed his people, this Herod had accumulated a vast amount of wealth and had a gorgeous palace, the likes of which is still the wonderment 
of archaeologists who excavate today trying to figure out where he got all of his wealth. There are two of the people, and they would have had powerful parades. All that money could buy could be bought by Herod. All that military pomp and authority and awesome might could display would be there by Pilate. But the parade that interests us the most this week is the one when Jesus of Nazareth comes into the city of Jerusalem. He does not come riding upon some big white horse, but rather when he gets to the outskirts of the city with his disciples, his twelve apostles, he tells them something that's almost strange. He says, go into the village, You'll find there a certain man with a little donkey and a little colt of that donkey. On that little colt, no person has yet ever ridden. You loose him and bring him here to me. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosening the colt? then you tell them the Lord has need of them. And Mark, in his straightforward way of putting it, says, and we will bring him back immediately. <laughs> I love that. That's a touch that no fake would have ever put into writing a record of the gospel. We'll bring him back immediately. That's how poverty-stricken they were. They didn't have any great wealth. And I've often thought about that little donkey. Poems have been written about him. Stories have been written about him. The tiny little donkey on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem. What a great honor his was to be. And then how Jesus, meek and lowly in the fulfillment of a prophecy way back in the book of Zechariah, will come into the town choosing this tiny little creature. He wasn't broken in, and yet he knew his master. It's strange that in the records of the gospel, the winds and the waves obey his voice. Death obeys his voice. The water obeys his voice and is turned into wine. The bread obeys his voice and is turned into enough to feed a multitude. Disease obeys his voice and flees. The little animal will be calm and will be obedient to him when he comes in in his parade. And the records of the gospel that which does not obey Jesus is man. Man does not obey him. There are few who do. But so he comes. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. Just a few days before, he had been in Jericho in Zacchaeus' house, and a great transformation had taken place in Zacchaeus' life. 
probably arousing the hostility of some of his own disciples that he should have gone into Zacchaeus' house and eaten. And yet what a transformation takes place with Zacchaeus. Some scholars of the New Testament maintain that maybe a Judas at this point broke with Jesus because of his acceptance of Zacchaeus. And then on the way, there's blind Bartimaeus who hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and calls out, and when they try to hush him, he will not hush, but cries out all the louder. He knows who he is. Jesus, thou son of David, the one to whom they were looking. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus makes that blind man to see, and this would have created enormous excitement. They have sent for him to come, and he goes to Martha and Mary's house, and where Lazarus has been dead, he is now raised from the dead. And so huge crowds are gathered, believing that this must be a mighty prophet like Elijah, because you remember on the cross when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, some said he's crying for Elijah or one of the prophets. They expected a great prophet, but some knew him to be more than a prophet. He surprises them. He disappoints them in what they want him to do and surprises them in what he does. But when we truly believe him, we are always surprised by joy. He knows better for us than we know what we want for ourselves. What is the significance of these cries? First of all, let me talk to you a little bit about the owner of the colt. I don't know who the owner of the colt was. No one does. But I like the fact that he was obedient. If the Lord came to you and said, I need your bulldozer, I need your truck, I need your typewriter, I need your car, I need your son or your daughter, I need you to do this or to do that, would you obey him? The owner here does. And he sets an example for us and realizing that Jesus is Lord over all that we possess. And so when Jesus comes into the town, and they begin to cry out words that come from the greatest section of the Psalter, the Haliel, Haleo, Psalm 113 to 118, The key words in that psalm are, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Now, Pilate was no fool. He knew that his Roman procurator over this troublesome people that were hard to keep into check, it was necessary for him to be wherever big crowds of people were gathered on these festive occasions. And Passover was a big one. 
It was not only religious, but it is nationalistic too. It commemorated their exodus out of Egypt when the angel of death passed over and delivered the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And so they celebrate it to this day, Orthodox Jews. They will be celebrating it in London, in Paris. They will be celebrating it in Jerusalem and in Cape Town. They will be celebrating it wherever Jews are assembled. And they will be saying this night in London, next year in Jerusalem. Orthodox Jews will be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We know that the Messiah has already come. These Jews celebrated that Passover deliverance and the Romans worried a little bit about these religious festivals because they were tied in to national things too. They celebrated a feast called Pentecost, which will come 50 days after Passover. And at Pentecost, they celebrate the giving of the law. And the law of God would mean law that governs us and delivers us from the tyranny of self and from unfairness of others. Moses will go into a mountain and come down with his face radiant with the tablets of the law. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come with tongues of fire, imprinting the law upon the hearts of those who believe in Jesus and giving a new liberty there. In October, there is a festival of tabernacles or booths that commemorated their wandering in the wilderness. And then there is in December the festival of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication, the dedication of the temple. And the dedication of the temple came about as a result of 176 years before the birth of Christ, a great patriot by the name of Judas Maccabeus, who rebelled against those who controlled the temple and cleansed it and rededicated it. And so they loved Judas Maccabeus. And do you know what his symbol was? It was a palm branch. And maybe they thought Jesus is going to be another Judas Maccabeus who will deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus will deliver them in a different way than they expect. And so they cry out to him. Their happy Hosanna. Their expression, Lord save us. Lord save us. A cry of great power and pathos. And please don't say it means praise the Lord because it doesn't mean praise the Lord. If Pilate had the CIA out there mingling amongst all these worshipers, and they came back and said, Mr. Pilate, uh, you know, we've translated what they've been shouting, and it's not hallelujah, it's not praise the Lord. You know what they're shouting? They're shouting, save us, Lord. That mean, may mean save us from Rome. That could have been a part of it. And I'm sure that's why Pilate was afraid of insurrection at this time. 
Now his rival, Herod, was called a friend of Caesar. That, that's an official title. That's not just some designation that one of the gospel writers give to him. Philo Kaiser, a friend of Caesar. And they cast that into Jesus' teeth when Pilate's wife has the alarm bells ring in her mind and she awakens in the night and sends word to her husband to have nothing to do with that just man. And we'll be studying more about this on Thursday night at communion. And Pilate wants to wash his hands and let Jesus go free. And do you know what the people shout when they want to really get him nailed on the cross? They say, you're not even Caesar's friend, like Herod is. If you let him go, you never will be Caesar's friend. And they use this as a form of twisting it a little more to make it a little tougher for Pilate to turn down their request. And it's after that that he lets Jesus go and be crucified. Beware of being caught in a crowd and consenting to the crucifixion of your Lord. Beware of being caught in a crowd and being one of those who will cry one moment, save me, Lord, and in the very next moment, cry out for his crucifixion because that's what the crowd seems to want to cry out. What did they have? They talked of him as the son of David. They wanted that identity that was there in David, and that's one reason they were so happy to say, Hosanna, son of David, save us. They saw in this an identity which the Jewish people still have to this day. It's funny there... Uh, it's not funny, but it's strange that their whole history has been rather sad. But the happiest time of the Jewish race was during David's reign. He was their greatest king. Moses was their great deliverer. They saw these things in Jesus, a deliverer to save them, a good king to rule over them, a prophet who could teach them if they would only listen to what he says. Jesus accepted their cry. You remember the Pharisees who were very active laymen. The Pharisees who were very orthodox laymen. When these people began to cry, cry out to Jesus, Hosanna, save us, save us, Lord, save us, please. The Pharisees came to, to Jesus and said, don't you hear what these people are saying? Tell them to stop that. And Jesus said, if I should command them to stop that, the stones would cry out. And so on that day of triumph, he enters with people seeking an identity, with people seeking a deliverance shouting these praises that are there. And Jesus brings us all of this and more. He brings us and conquers for us the work of the devil, 
He is victorious over Satan. Satan would have loved this demonstration of popularity and would have thought Jesus should have capitalized on it. But not Jesus. He retired. We are told that he went in and looked around the temple and then he went out in solitude again on that first Palm Sunday. Now, I always say on Palm Sunday, he's always here and he's always looking. But what do you see when you see him? Just a figure in a Sunday school book, a colored figure in a purple robe. Or do you see someone who is a living entity, a living presence who's personal and who has something to do with the decisions that you make every single day you live? Who decides whether you will make the money that you make in the way you make it and that you will spend it in the way you spend it, and decides what your attitude will be toward those around you in your home and those where you work? Is he Lord every single day, or is he not Lord? Palm Sunday means save us, Lord, and we need to be saved. We need to be saved from ourselves and from our misconceptions of what he wants us to be. Parades can be so deceptive. This week I picked up in B. Dalton's bookstore and I almost bought it, but my wife didn't like for me to buy so many books. Uh, I, I almost bought uh, a book that was on special, big thick book about Adolf Hitler. Sometimes when I can't sleep I read these things, maybe that's why I can't sleep. But, uh, but anyway, in, in reading, uh, reading about Hitler, uh, if you flip through there and look at Speer, uh, who was one of his uh, chief military people right to the very end, Hitler had come into the city of Paris in France. And he had expected when the Germans overran France that all of Paris would line up on the Champs-Élysées and see him go through the Arc de Triomphe, the Arc of Triumph, and greet him in great numbers. That's what he expected. That's what happened when he went into Austria. And so he, had a, he, he was one of those who, who imitated the Roman business with the eagles and the standards and the symbols and so forth. And so when Hitler came into Paris, he came in expecting to see all of these crowds and the the Frenchmen, who were typically Frenchmen, they stayed home. Hitler never forgave them for that. He was very mad when his Mercedes, with all of his Germans goose-stepping and driving through with their armament, came through the Champs-Élysées and the Arc de Triomphe and there were, the Frenchmen weren't there. And one of the last orders that he ever gave when the Germans were having to get out of France was to burn it to the ground. He didn't like it because they'd given him such a cool reception. Herod gets one reception, Pilate gets one reception, but Jesus gets a reception And with their lips, they say one thing. 
And I think the Lord will work grace in the hearts of many of these people who are there. Grace in a wonderful way. Because when he does not do things the way we want them done, it's because he has something better planned for us. There are times when we do not know how to pray as we ought. And even Paul had to say this in Romans chapter 8. But he could also say that the Holy Spirit who indwells us makes intercession for us. And sometimes when I do not know whether, whether to pray for someone to go ahead and die or to live, I can say, Blessed Holy Spirit, you intercede. You know what's best. You make the prayer right. And I can always pray, Lord, thy will be done. And know that he's doing his will. He may not, I may wake up one day in heaven to find that the surest, best, most beautiful and perfect answer to my prayer was his wise refusal to give me what I wanted when I asked him. Now that's what I want to tell you about the lesson of Palm Sunday. They wanted a king in one way, to deliver them from the bondage of Rome. But what they got was a greater king who gave them deliverance from the bondage of sin, from the work of the devil, and from even the bondage of death itself. A much better, happier king and kingdom than they could have ever realized. And it took Easter Day and Pentecost for it to really fill their joy, fill their hearts with joy when they understood that king who came that day. Let me close by telling you a funny story. I was staying in the lovely home of some friends not long ago and there was a book on Karsh of Ottawa. Do any of you know who Karsh of Ottawa is? He is the most famous photographer on the planet Earth. And all of the big figures of the world want Karsh of Ottawa to take their photograph. He came out of Armenia. Uh, he is a Christian. And he came out of Armenia when the Armenians were being slaughtered uh, by the Turks. He got out and came to America, uh, came to Canada, and was received there, and he had a terribly trying and difficult life, but he had incredible genius. And by carefully using lights, he is able to create marvelous photographs. Some of you will be interested in knowing that he loves to photograph older people with wrinkles because they show up good in the lighting. And, and he says you really can't tell much about young people with all that smoothness there. And, uh, and uh, he wants the wrinkles because he thinks they tell much. And if you stop to think of Albert Einstein and you closed your eyes and you're a person who's literate enough to have seen a photograph of Albert Einstein, you probably saw Karsh's photograph of Einstein. He appeared on the program on CBS 60 Minutes 
and they asked him to tell some of the interesting episodes that came with his taking photographs. Well, my favorite photograph of Karsh is the photograph that he made of Winston Churchill. And he made that photograph just at the beginning of World War II when it was at its very bleakest in 1942 when the Nazis were overrunning everything and it looked like the battle for Britain was going to be lost and that England would lose and that the whole Western civilization was going to be plunged into the idiocy of a demon-possessed dictator named Adolf Hitler. And about all Britain had to use in its defense was the magnificent oratory of an old man by the name of Winston Churchill. But he had the face like a tough English bulldog. And if you close your eyes, you can just see him with that big face and that scowl and that bulldog look in his face. You know why you got that image in your mind? It was because he came to make a speech before the parliament in Ottawa to rally support for the British. And before he had ever arrived, Karsh, who was a very tenacious person, had begged the, the Canadian Parliament to get him permission uh, to photograph Churchill. He said, you'll need a photograph for all of the uses that political leaders need them. And so they had the protocol people approach Churchill and he said, no. And they said, but it'll only take just two or three hours. And Churchill said, you're crazy. I'm not going to be photographed by any photographer for two or three hours. I don't care who he is. Well, Karsh wouldn't give up. And so he made his speech before Parliament, and he was to walk out of the Parliament building, uh, Parliament Hall, and to walk through the chambers of the Parliament Library. So Karsh, in a good Armenian's tenacity, <laughs> set up all of his equipment in the library and begged again if someone would approach him to just pose for 20 minutes. He said, no. So Karsh still put his stuff all up, and when they, uh, the protocol guy said, I'll lead him right out of, the, of making the speech where he made one of those tremendous speeches where everyone was just swept off their feet by his oratory and their hearts were pounding, and he came out of that all possessed and full of what he had to do with the war with that cigar chomped on in his mouth and he started through the Parliament Library, and they said, will you stop, please, Mr. Prime Minister? Uh, Karsh is here, and he would like to take your picture. Boy, Churchill didn't like that a bit. <laughs> but he said, okay, take the picture. And so he had this stuff with a cigar in his mouth. And uh, Karsh had everything set up, and he said, Mr. Prime Minister, would you please take the cigar out of your mouth? And Churchill said, no. <laughs> and Karsh came out from behind his camera and ran up to him and yanked the cigar out of his mouth and went back real quick and snapped the picture just to get the look on Churchill's face when he looked at him. It was absolutely perfect. <laughs> the greatest picture that he ever had made. The one that will go down in the Hall of Fame. Now what the point is is this. He took away his cigar but he gave him the greatest picture he ever had. Churchill loved it. Later he had him come and gave him hours of time because he got the scowl that he needed to whip Germany. <laughs> and they put that picture everywhere. Well, our king comes. 
He may take the little cigar out of your mouth and take away your crummy little pacifier and uh, your little security blanket of what you think Jesus ought to be, but he'll give you something better. He'll make you really what you ought to be as king and lord of your life. You want him to be your savior. Saw ye my savior wounded and bleeding? When we come to take the Holy Supper, it's a celebration of our salvation, our deliverance from sin, our deliverance from death that he has gained for us, and of our pledge to be loyal and faithful to him all the days of our life. Are you willing to take the supper that way? Are you willing this morning for him to be king of kings and lord of lords in your house, in your life, in your dormitory, with your children, with your possessions, with everything that you have? If you are not, then I do not believe you can call yourself a Christian because Jesus must be Lord. You cannot say, not so, Lord. But you must say, yes, Lord. And give him all that you possess. When the rich young ruler turned away sorrowful and went away from Jesus, Jesus didn't go running after him and say, come back, we'll work out a 70% deal. No. You give yourself to him. 100%. And that means you have to hit your own cross, go through your own Gethsemane, and say, not my will, but thy will be done. But then you'll know him in the power of his resurrection as the living Christ. Let us bow in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for our Savior. We bless you that he fulfills our deepest needs our need to be delivered from sin, our need to be delivered from the power and work of the devil, our need to be delivered from death. We thank you, Lord, that in one moment in history there were a group of people who recognized him. And we thank you for those people who, the, who through the centuries since have recognized him as well. And Lord, I pray for those in this chapel who may be struggling with that recognition right now, wondering whether or not to trust this Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And Lord, I pray that during these days, this week especially, each of us in the journeys that we make in life will be able to discover Jesus Christ as the one who fill, fulfills our deepest needs. Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Hallelujah.